My name is Pastor Jake. I'm the lead pastor here. It's my joy and honor to unpack the scriptures uh, with you and for you today. I pray that God challenges you. Um, if you have your Bible, you can head over to uh, 1 Samuel and 1 John. We'll get there in a minute. 1 Samuel and 1 John. So I have uh, three kids. Got a nine-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. So uh, my four-year-old Joshua, he's our only boy, my four-year-old Joshua is entertaining. Uh, he's an interesting, entertaining guy, right? Uh, if you've had him in uh, Little Oaks back there, you know this to be true, right? He is, he is an entertaining dude. Uh, and so he's active, he's all boy, he likes to run around and wrestle, and sometimes that gets him in trouble, okay? So he's, he's an entertaining guy. Never a dull moment with this kid, all right? I love him to death. Uh, so he is in Mom's Day Out, like a pre-K every week, two days a week. And uh, my wife Erin says that it's a rare exception that she goes to pick up Joshua from pre-K, from this Mom's Day Out, and they don't ask her to come in for a little chat afterwards. How many of you have gone in for the chat before? All right. Yeah, it's just me. It's just my kid. It's fine. Um, and so she says, she always gets like, hey, Aaron, uh, could you come in? We just want to chat about something for a second. And she loves it. <laughs> she loves it. She goes in, she gets to sit in those little chairs made for four-year-olds, right? Um, they're like, come on in, have a seat. Are you comfortable? No, doesn't matter, all right? Doesn't matter. Sit in these little chairs. The teachers are in thrones, high and lifted up. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been in there before, I'm just kidding, kind of. I might be exaggerating. Uh, but she has to do this, and, and sometimes she comes home, and uh, she talks about this, and, and she's kind of awaiting the judgment in there, right? And, and then they talk to her, and, and uh, I, I always ask her, like, what, what did he do? Like, what, did he lead an insurrection? Like, what, what prompted this, like, judgment? What happened? Like, I'm always asking, like, what's the damage? Like, do I have to pay bills? Like, are we talking medical bills here? Like, broken noses, broken arms? Like, what, what did he do? And she's always like, no, no, no. And, and the notes say, we, we get these little sheets of paper uh, home every week, and uh, he's supposed to get stickers in all the, um, like, eight different centers. That's the goal, get eight stickers. This one has three. So it's just the way it is. And so she's like, no, she's reading it. She's like, no, it just says that he was, he was like squirmy during calendar time. And then later it says, you know, like, oh, during, uh, during recess time, he was, he was rowdy. And I'm like, oh, call the police. Should we expel this kid or what? Like, let's, let's get serious about this. Except for one time. It said in there, it had written in there, when we were moving from centers to snack time, Joshua jumped up on the table and screamed, we don't have to move. Follow me. All right, we can take her. All right? And then it went on. It said, and then when I asked him to step down from the table and to stop screaming, he said in an Optimus Prime voice, one shall rise and one shall fall. None of that really happened. <laughs> that didn't really happen. But it's usually minor stuff, and sometimes 
Sometimes he's legitimately disruptive, right? And he, he, he needs to be better. And so when he started going to pre-K, we, we had this thing. We had this, this thing we get every week. And so every week we have this thing with Joshua. We're like, oh, you can do it, buddy. Come on. Like, you can be good. Be good at pre-K. You're going to be good at pre-K. And I'll bribe. Like, I am not above bribery, all right? So I'm just like, ice cream, new toy, donuts. What do you want? All right? Just ask me. And if you get all your stickers, I always make it impossible, right? Like, if you get all your stickers, I'll get you those things, you know? And so I'm I'm not above bribery if he'll do the work, all right? And so each week, this is kind of a thing in our house. And the other day, he came home, and he had had kind of a bad day. He would gotten, like, no stickers or three stickers or something like that. And so we're talking through it. And, of course, he gets, he gets in trouble at school. He gets in trouble at home. And so we're up in his room talking about it. And I could see he was, he was sorry. He was crying. And, and he was really wrestling with something. And he was just going, I'm, I'm sorry. And then he's crying, and he says, I can't do it. I just can't be good. I don't know why, but I can't be good. I'm just a bad boy. And I was like, you're right. I'm thinking about giving you away. No, I'm kidding. I didn't say that. Don't call, don't call the DCFS or whoever. No, I said, whoa, 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 buddy. That's not what we're saying here. I said, I've never called you a bad boy because you're not a bad boy. We talk about you acting bad, right? We talk about you having a bad day. But listen, buddy, I think you're a good kid. I think you, I know you're a good boy. If I thought you were a bad kid and you can never be good, then we wouldn't even be having this conversation, right? We wouldn't even be, you wouldn't be getting in trouble. But I know you're good, Joshua. I know you can be good. You can get these stickers. You can respect your teacher. You can keep from punching that kid in the nose. Right? He never punched anybody in the nose. I'm just kidding. I'm trying to help Joshua figure out how to be good. How to do the right thing. Today, I want to talk to you about a game changer in the Old Testament who is known for doing the right thing over and over and over again. Last week we started our series, Game Changers, and we talked about the prophet, I'm sorry, the judge, Deborah, who had this incredible game-changing wisdom. And if you missed last week, please go to iTunes or our website, get the podcast and listen to it. I believe God wants you to seek wisdom from above and not below. So listen to that for sure. But Deborah was a judge around 1260 B.C., so today I want to fast forward about 100 years down the timeline uh, to a guy named Samuel. Everybody say Samuel. Samuel. Prophet Samuel. That's who we're going to talk about today as a game changer. And he was a game changer that really bridged a few different eras in the Old Testament because he's considered the last judge, the last of the judges, but he's also considered the first to hold the office of prophet in the Old Testament. Not only that, but he's the one who ushered in the Israeli monarchy. There weren't any kings in Israel before Samuel anointed King Saul, the first king of Israel. He also anointed the second king of Israel, which we'll talk about next week, King David. That's my favorite game changer in this series, so definitely don't miss next week. But what we know of Samuel is that he was righteous. He did the right thing over and over and over again. In fact, in, in the scriptural account of Samuel, we really have no example of the prophet Samuel sinning. 
It's long. We got lots of chapters on Samuel. We got no example of him really making a big mistake. I'm not saying he was perfect. Jesus was the only one who was perfect. But almost every other, really every other game changer we talk about or character in the Bible had a flaw that the scriptures pointed out. Samuel is interesting in that he doesn't really he doesn't really have that. We, can't, we don't have anything uh, to point back to. And we don't have time to get into every detail of Samuel's life. Read 1 Samuel this week if you haven't uh, read it recently. You'll learn a lot through that. But I want to show you three moments in the life of Samuel. If Samuel's life is a movie, these are three scenes. At the beginning of the movie, the middle of the movie, and at the end that point to this idea of game-changing righteousness. So the first scene that we're going to talk about is when Samuel is a kid. You see, Samuel was dedicated to the Lord at the temple before he was even conceived. Because his mother, his godly mother Hannah, went and prayed to God to not let her be barren, to let her conceive and bear a son. And she hadn't yet conceived at that time, but when she's praying, she dedicates this future son's life to the Lord. So he's brought, Samuel is brought to the temple to live there at a very young age with the judge and the priest of the time, a guy named Eli. Now the problem with Eli is that he had two sons. And they were corrupt. They were evil. They did wicked things as leaders in Israel. They took bribes. They did all these evil things. And the Bible is pretty harsh on them. It says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, or verse 12, I should say, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Pretty harsh, right? They did not know the Lord. I don't know about you, but that's the last thing I want to be described of as by God, right? That Jake Mills was just a worthless dude. Like I'm hoping that's not what God says about me, um, you know, after I die uh, or before. So uh, Eli's sons are worthless, the Bible says. So Samuel finds himself in this corrupt, wicked situation. And the first time Samuel is ever talked to by the Lord, the first word that the Lord ever gives him is about standing for righteousness in an evil, corrupt situation. It's about doing the right thing. Look at 1 Samuel 3. It says there that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, which doesn't surprise us, right? Because if our leaders and we ourselves live a life of corruption and against the commands of God, we shouldn't expect to hear from the Lord, right? We shouldn't expect to have the Lord's voice evident in our lives. And so that's not surprising. But in 1 Samuel 3, uh, the boy Samuel is lying down for bed. God speaks to him, says his name, Samuel. Samuel gets up. He's never heard the voice of the Lord before. He runs to Eli and goes, yeah, what do you need? Eli goes, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Have you ever sent your kid back to bed when... Like, Mommy, I thought you called me. What? It's 3 a.m. Go back to bed. All right, that's what's happening here. He sends him back to bed. This happens three times. Finally, Eli goes, you know what? I think God's speaking to you. Next time you hear your name, just answer the Lord and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so the, the last time Samuel does that, and here's what the Lord says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, starting in verse 11. Behold. I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it 
will tingle. Not just one of your ears tingling. This is double tingling. Okay, you with me? Double tingling. Verse 12. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity, for the sin that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Whoa, right? I mean, this is a very serious judgment on the house of Eli. Put yourself in Samuel's shoes for a minute. You've no doubt seen some things that don't pass the sniff test, right? You've seen some things that just don't seem right in Eli's sons, but you're just a kid. God comes to you with this word that he's going to punish the family of a guy who has been like a father to you basically your whole life. He's going to punish that guy's family forever. Withhold grace. Punish him forever because of what his sons are doing. The first word Samuel ever received from the Lord is about righteousness, doing the right thing, standing for righteousness. God calls Samuel to do that. But talk about awkward, right? I mean, you're just a kid. Eli's the boss. What do you do? You wake up the next morning, you're like, hey, uh, boss, good morning. Remember that whole God talking to me in the middle of the night thing? Yeah, sorry about that, but... um, God said he's going to punish your house forever and never atone for your sins. You want some coffee? I mean, what do you do? Samuel could have absolutely hid from this. He could have not told Eli the word from the Lord. He could have lied about it, but he didn't do any of that because that wouldn't have been doing the right thing. He stood for righteousness. He delivered the the troubling word of the Lord to his boss, his father figure at the time, Eli told him the truth. So that's scene one in 1 Samuel 3. Let me show you scene two in Samuel's life, the movie of Samuel's life in 1 Samuel 7. As you're turning there, I'll just kind of fill in the gaps between chapters 3 and chapter 7, or chapter 3 and chapter 7. Um, Basically, uh, the Israelites go out to battle against the Philistines, their mortal enemies. Uh, God does not bless them in battle. In fact, he allows purposefully and intentionally allows the Philistines to defeat the Israelites. And, And the worst thing about it is that the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen in this battle. The Ark of the Covenant was basically represented the favor, presence, and blessing of God on the nation of Israel. It was a big deal. And so they're all like, what? We can't believe the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. This has never happened before. God has left us. There's all this weeping and gnashing of teeth. Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant. God sends miraculously, sends a plague on the Philistine houses that hold the Ark. He sends tumors on their body. He sends a plague of rats, mice, uh, to mess with them. And so the Philistines, this keeps happening. They keep tossing the Ark from family to family, town to town to town. It keeps happening until finally seven months later, the Philistines wisen up and go, I think we need to get rid of the Ark. And so how many of you have been, God's been talking to you for a while, and you're like, you know what? It took me about 32 years, but I think God's been speaking to me, <laughs> right? 
It's kind of like that with the Philistines. Seven months of tumors and mice. And they're like, all right, we're out. And they send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. Now, there's a moment here for the Israelites. They've been not following the Lord. There's a moment for them to repent, to respond to the signs and wonders of the Lord, that he brought the Ark of the Covenant back in a miraculous way. There's a moment for them to repent and begin really following the Lord. And so Samuel stands up in front of everybody in 1 Samuel 7. And in verse 3, He says this, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. If you're turning back to the Lord, if you're going to be the Lord's for real, if you're going to come back to him, Samuel goes, then do the right thing. Don't just say it. Do it. Practice righteousness, Samuel says. Put away the false gods. Get rid of them. Burn them. Get them out so that there's no temptation. And then just follow the Lord completely from that day forward. Samuel had this game-changing righteousness, didn't he? He had this righteousness that he practiced in his own life, but he also consistently tried to get the people he was leading to practice this same game-changing righteousness. He judged Israel. Samuel was direct. He was, he was harsh at times. He was straight up, just like, here's what the Lord says, do it or don't. You can't tell me what to do, Samuel. You don't know my heart. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. What's right for you might not be what's right for me. You can't judge me, Samuel. He's like, hello, I'm a judge. I think Samuel would have been considered pretty judgmental by most of us in our culture today who don't like somebody telling us what is right and wrong. But really... He was just standing for righteousness and encouraging the people to do the right thing. That's scene number two. Let me show you scene number three in the life of Samuel. It's at the end of his life. It's in 1 Samuel 12. He gives this kind of farewell address. Even though he doesn't actually die till about uh, chapter 24 or 25, uh, Samuel gives this farewell address ahead of time. He knows uh, that his time is short and he wants to say a few things to the people of Israel. And so 1 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Basically, the people wanted a king. Samuel said, you don't need a king. You already have a king. His name's Yahweh, Jehovah. You don't need a king. They said, no, we want a king like all the other nations. They persisted. God said, you know what? Give them a king and we'll see how it goes. And Samuel gives them a king. Verse 2. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I stolen? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? 
Testify against me and I will restore it to you. The people said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And the people said, he is witness. So Samuel's in front of all of Israel and he goes, if I've done anything wrong, tell me. If I've taken an ox or a donkey, if I've taken a a bribe, if I've done anything as a leader of the nation of Israel, if I've done anything wrong, just tell me. Just tell me. And nobody says anything. Nobody's able to come up with anything he's done wrong. He had this game-changing righteousness to the day he died. And I don't think you'll be surprised by what he says in this speech, and starting in verse 14. He says, this is what's called a conditional statement. It has an if in front of it. When you, when you see a statement with an if, you have to figure out what's the like, if condition, then result, right? And so you got to kind of figure that out in this. It says in verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if... Both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. It will be well. If you do those things, it will be well. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Look at verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things. After empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because he has pleased, it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far, it be from, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and in the right way. Do not rebel against the Lord. Don't turn aside and run after empty things. Follow the good and the right way. Game-changing righteousness. And listen, this is just three examples, just three scenes in the movie of the life of Samuel. And there are others. And Samuel had this huge effect on the nation of Israel. He ushered in a time of prosperity and peace that, that was, hasn't been rivaled since. Samuel started a, a school for the prophets that lasted 500 years and trained prophets whose names you and I would recognize who went on to write books in the Old Testament in our Bible. He was absolutely a game changer. So let me just ask you. Have you lived your life in such a way that you can stand before your coworkers, your clients, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your community, and say, if I've done anything wrong, tell me. If I've stolen, if I've lied, if I've acted selfishly, if I've done anything wrong, please tell me and have nobody say anything. Has anybody attained the righteousness of Samuel 
at this point in your life? Let's just do a poll. Anybody? Okay, because I was thinking if, if you raised your hand, I'd just give you the stage, all right? Just like, come on, teach us, all right? Teach us, oh great one. No, we haven't done this. None of us have done this. How many of you have stood for righteousness against dishonest gain? The, the oppression of those in the greatest need. Stood for righteousness consistently against the lies that are pushed forward on a daily basis in our culture. Have you held close to the truth of God? So close to the truth of God that when he gives you something to teach, something to say, something to deliver to someone else, you give that word, you say that truth, no matter the fallout. No matter if that person decides they don't like you and unfriend you on Facebook. No matter if they break fellowship with you, move in a different direction, have you delivered the word of God in that way? Stood for righteousness in that way? Because make no mistake about it, that's what we're talking about here. That's the example God gives us in the prophet Samuel. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. And we all have problems. We, we, each of us, we make mistakes. We're imperfect. We all have issues. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, you got issues. Some of you like that too much. Some of you, I can tell you, are like, I want to say it, but I'm not. I'm not going to say it. I want to say it, but I'm not. I'm not going to say it. Yeah, we've, we've got issues. So how do we pull this off? Well, I want to spend the rest of our time together today just talking through this idea of righteousness. Because I don't want you to feel defeated today, but I also don't want you to leave here going like, I'm good. I'm good and I'm righteous. Like, I'm pretty righteous. Well, I'm good in this area. I'm like Samuel. Now, I'm hoping you don't leave that way either. I want you to be challenged, but I want you to also be encouraged. And so righteousness, let's... Let's talk about it for a second. I think we can look at the idea of righteousness in the Bible from two angles. Everybody say two angles. Two angles. I'm going to try that again. Uh, so uh, everybody say two angles. Two angles. Nailed it. <laughs> two angles. So we look at righteousness from two angles in the Bible. There's the righteousness of man versus the righteousness of God. So we look at the righteousness of man and the righteousness of God. This shows up in the Bible. And so anytime you see the word righteous or righteousness, you, you want to ask yourself when you're reading the Bible, uh, is this the righteousness of man or is this the righteousness of God? So let's talk about man's righteousness first because I think that's the easier one to understand. Man's righteousness is what most of us probably think of when we see the word righteous. It's doing righteous acts. It's following the letter of the law. And it can be good. It's, I'm going to follow what the law says. When you act or you have an attitude or thoughts in accordance with the law of the Lord, the commands of Jesus Christ, you are acting righteously and you have a form of man's righteousness. So you can, it's when we like help people, it's when we give to the poor, it's when we do what the law says. We are acting right. That's our righteousness. And you can have a high level of the righteousness of man. You can 
like with sheer willpower and determination and all that, you can buckle down and have a pretty high level of righteousness just by your own merit. I mean, not all of you, right? I mean, like maybe one or two of you can do this. Let's just be honest. Like this is out of control difficult, right? There might be one or two of you in here who can, like with determination and schedule and discipline, just get a high level. Just act right before the, just act right. Just live righteousness out. You might be able to do that. The problem with this kind of righteousness, man's righteousness, is that no matter how hard you try, no matter what level of it you attain, it's never enough. Why? Because God's righteousness is our standard. God is our standard. We compare ourselves to God. And you're never going to get to the God level. Okay, you're never going to be like at the end of your life going, made it to the God level. Get your own world. You don't, that doesn't happen, okay? That, that's not true. That's, that's a lie. The standard is God. That's why we'll never get to a high enough level. And Isaiah 64 says that our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Lord. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. That's just the Bible's way of saying they don't measure up. And let me just stop here for a moment. This isn't in my notes, but I want to say this to you today. If you are putting your hope for eternity, what happens after you die, if you are putting your hope for eternity in your own ability to act righteous, in your own ability to have good works, in your own ability to be moral and a good person compared to the schmuck your neighbor is or the murder on the, murderer on the, the news, if you're saying that you put your hope for eternity in your own ability to act righteous, then you are betting on the wrong horse. You will not measure up in the end because it's your righteous acts, not just your evil, your wickedness, your darkness, but your righteous acts are like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. So in the end, it's your righteousness that condemns you, not your wickedness. Your own righteousness speaks to the Lord and says, not enough. Can't get there. Your righteousness is like filthy rags to God. Welcome to Great Oaks. It's just trying to encourage you this morning. So that's the righteousness of man. It's doing righteousness in our own strength and it ends up failing because we can't measure up and That brings us to the other side of righteousness, which is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, it's complete. It's not momentary or temporary, but on a deeper level, the righteousness of God is not something that God does. It's something that God is. And there's a difference. So when we look at God... We don't look at God through the lens of our understanding of righteousness and go, is he righteous or not? No, he's always righteous. He can never not be righteous. God equals righteousness. So then we flip that and we look at our idea of righteousness through the lens of how God is revealed in the scriptures. Are you tracking with me? 
And so then we look at our idea of righteousness and change it, change our idea of righteousness based on who God is. Righteousness is not something God does, it's who he is, okay? So that's a little bit different. But let me just say two quick things about God's righteousness. First of all, it serves as the standard we use to measure our own righteousness. We mentioned that earlier. But I want to be clear here. We're not measuring ourselves or our righteousness to God in order to be better. Okay, that's where this message gets hijacked, okay? This is not you looking at God and going, ah, I think I got about three or four levels to go and then I'm there. Right? This is not you looking at God and going, ah, oh, I just need to work a little harder. I just need to do this. I just need to do that. He's more righteous than me, no doubt about it. But if I work hard, maybe I'll get there. That's not, this is not looking at God's righteousness and trying to work harder in order to get there. The idea of this, this thing with God being the standard for our righteousness is that we're supposed to look at God's righteousness and we're like, I don't even think I can see it. It's so far up. And we're supposed to go, I got no shot at this. Self-help is an oxymoron. I can't help myself. I'm broken. How can a broken thing help another broken? It doesn't make any sense. I can't help myself. I can't attain some high level of righteousness. I need Jesus. That's the point. You're supposed to look at the righteousness of God, compare it to yourself and say, I can't do it. I need Jesus. You see the difference? The second thing about righteousness is that when we give our lives to Jesus, our righteousness, or lack thereof, is exchanged for God's righteousness in Christ. When we give our lives to Jesus, this great exchange happens. It's called justification. In theology terms, and it just means that now I'm justified to stand before God and not be unholy, not be sinful, be able to stand before God. Because when God looks at me, he doesn't see my unrighteousness and sin. He sees the righteousness of God in Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness, and he sees that perfection, right? So I can stand before him. This happens supernaturally at the moment of salvation, and it, it doesn't... Uh, depend on anything you do. It just depends on God's grace in your life. Um, look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 on the screen. It just says this. It summarizes the gospel message in this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange. We get the righteousness of God in exchange for our sinfulness. When you become a Jesus follower, when you give your life to Christ, you exchange your righteousness for his. That's what it means to be saved by grace. You don't deserve it, can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to get it. God gives you, Christ gives you his righteousness. Are you following me so far? Today we're doing a little, little more like teaching, okay? So hopefully, hopefully you're awake. Let me explain it with an illustration to help you out. Have you ever been to a theme park? Of course you have. 
Has anybody ever not been to a theme park? I just want to check. Okay. Uh, you've been to a theme park or a fair or something like that. You go, uh, if you're like, if you remember when you were a kid or if you are a kid, when you were just getting just like 40 inches tall or something and like you were like some rides you could ride and some you couldn't, but sometimes you'd like wait with your siblings or with your parents or whatever, your friends in a long line going up the, you know, back and forth and up and around and all the way to the, to the top of the roller coaster and you get there and there's a guy and he's got this stick, right? Some of you who are vertically challenged, you haven't made it yet, right? And that's okay. God still loves you. And so there's this stick. I've heard it explained this way to help us with this understanding of righteousness. There's this stick, and they go, ah, sorry, you're not tall enough. You have to be what? This tall to ride. You have to be this tall to ride. And so I found out one time when I was with Kennedy uh, doing bumper cars that actually that means something. Because I, like, persuaded the guy to let us in, even though she was short, and uh, she couldn't reach the pedals. <laughs> I was like, okay, there's rhyme and reason behind this, all right? So there's, there's a reason for that, but let's say for our illustration, you're at a place like this, and you're going to go on the heaven ride. Everybody say the heaven ride. You're going to go on this heaven ride, and you walk up, and you notice there's not anybody in line. It's kind of weird. You walk up, up the stairs, all the way up to the, the beginning of the heaven ride, and there's a guy there, an attendant, uh, and he doesn't have a stick, but he's just sitting there, and he goes, oh, hold up, and you go, oh, I mean, I'm a full-grown adult, like, how tall do you need to be to ride this ride? And I'm 5'11", you know, how tall do I need to be to ride? And he's like, I'm sorry, you can't ride, uh, you have to be 27 feet tall. And you're like, oh, I don't... I don't know anybody who's 27 feet tall. Like, does anybody ever get to ride the heaven ride? He goes, one guy did it. Jesus. You see, no matter how hard you try, you can't be 27 feet tall. If the only thing you remember out of this illustration is that Jesus is 27 feet tall, you missed it. <laughs> you missed it. All right, what does all this mean? Let's look at 1 John 3. 1 John 3, I think it'll kind of tie it all together. It says in verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, Jesus did, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Verse 10. By this, is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. So he says those who practice righteousness are righteous, and those who practice sin are 
from the devil. He even goes as far as to say, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked by the lies of this culture. Don't try to trick yourself into thinking everything's fine. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. This is 1 John. I didn't make it up. It's in 1 John. So, so here's my fear. I think you and I have a habit in our culture of thinking that being is separate from doing. That being is somehow separate from doing. That what we identify as is somehow separated from what we do, how we act in our lives. We identify as this, good father, Christian, moral person, but we act this way. We do this over here and they're separate. And we we do this as far as like being a Christian in the first place goes, are you Christian or not? Or we also do it within Christianity. So let me explain. Sometimes we can identify as Christian, Christ follower, and act in a way that is totally contrary to the scriptures that he has given us. We think that being is separate from doing. The truth is, like First John is saying, if you act in a way that is not righteous, if you make a practice of sinning, doesn't matter if you say you're a Christian, you wear a Christian t-shirt, you share the Christian meme on Facebook, you have the little fish on the back of your bumper. It, that doesn't matter. What you say doesn't matter. What you identify as doesn't matter because you're not a Christian. Because doing and being are absolutely connected. There's no way to separate those. It doesn't matter. I'm a Christian because I'm American. I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because my parents are Christian. None of that makes you a Christ follower. You're not actually a Christian. That's why it's tough for you to live like a Christian, to live in accordance with God's commands. Because you're not actually there yet. We do this within Christianity too. We identify as one thing, but we do another. We say, oh, in, in the church world, we say, I'm a, I'm a servant. Oh, yeah, I'm a servant. I love to serve. Then we're like, what do you do? Nothing. What do you do for the church? Nothing. Okay, servant. Or somebody says, hey, can you work in kids' ministry? Because it's exploding back there in more ways than one. You can work in the nursery. Can you work back there? We got lots of kids back there. Pastor Dan needs your help back there. Can you help back? Nah, I don't think that's for me. Nah, I'm not going to help. Hey, can you help us clean? Can you help us? Can you come on a work day and help us? Nah, I'm a servant, but I'm not, no. Not that kind of servant. And we make excuses or we think we're too good for whatever it is we're being asked to do or we're just lazy. Sometimes we say we're committed to the church body, but then what we do is separate from that. We never show up. Or we show up like one Sunday out of the month every month. And that doesn't even include the three months of Sundays that we miss because of Johnny's travel curling league. I mean, maybe he'll make it. He won't. I mean, maybe he'll make it. Travel baseball, travel hockey, travel everything, right? 
We're not here those three months, and it's like, well, but I'm committed, but we don't show up. What we do is separate from what we say we are. We say we're going to be a godly father, and we're going we're gonna to lead our family in the way of the Lord, but we don't show up there either. We put a priority, another thing, in priority above our family, and what we say we are is separate from what we do. Being is separate from doing, and the thing is, the Apostle John says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You can't earn salvation. That's true. You can't do first in order to be. You can't go that way. But being and doing are absolutely not separate. They're inseparable. You don't do in order to be. But you do because of who you are. Who you are affects what you do. Every time, if your actions don't line up with what you say you are, then you're lying or deceived about what you are. Tracking with me? It's that simple. There cannot be a disconnect here. If you say you're a Christian, you'll strive to follow Christ's commands. You'll live for him. You might not succeed in every second, every day and all that. We're all falling short all the time. But you'll choose him, choose the light, choose to obey him and not turn aside to things that Samuel said are empty. Not turn aside to those. You'll strive to be like Jesus. You won't persist in disobeying his commands because you don't like them or, you know, my friend is thinks that this is maybe not, this is outdated and, you know, the Old Testament doesn't matter and actually we can do this in our culture, it's fine. And uh, whatever the reasoning is, you don't, you don't make a way around it. You don't make a way around it. If you're a servant, you'll serve. You'll be offended if somebody asks you to serve. In fact, you won't wait to be asked to serve. You'll just jump in and you'll serve. If you're really committed to this community of faith or committed to your family, committed to your marriage, You'll show up. You'll be there. It'll be a priority to you, right? You see, doing and being are inseparable. Some people have this crazy idea that you can be righteous without doing righteousness. The Apostle John says, Don't be deceived. Those who do righteousness, those who act righteously, they're the ones who are righteous. He's saying doing actually confirms being. Doing confirms being. It doesn't start with the doing. It doesn't start with the acts of righteousness. It doesn't start there. It starts with the being. It starts with your identity. But who you are and what you are, what you really are, absolutely determines what you will do every time. If you've had your sinfulness exchanged for the righteousness of God in Christ, if you've given your life over to God like Samuel had, then you'll practice this game-changing righteousness in a time and in a world of compromise and excuses. Samuel had this unwavering righteousness, not because he was so great, but because God was great in him. Listen, this truth from 1 John, and it is from 1 John. I didn't make it up. This truth from 1 John, you could take it a couple different ways. I recommend that you allow it to convict you. 
to make you take inventory of your life. But don't stop there. You see, this truth can be both convicting and it can be encouraging as well. Let me say it this way. When my son Joshua has a bad day at school, he doesn't get all the stickers. He doesn't even get one sticker. When he has a bad day and he's, he's saying he's sorry, sometimes he can start to be like, you know, I don't know if I can ever be good. I'm just discouraged. I don't know if I could ever be a good boy at pre-K. And he might even make the mistake, this mistaken leap in logic, to think that my love for him is somehow contingent on his, his ability to be good at pre-K, that I won't love him if he isn't good at pre-K. That the number of stickers he has on that stupid chart, I mean that chart, chart, but the number of stickers he has on that chart is how I decide whether I love him or not. He could have this whole mistaken kind of confusion going on in his in his mind, but what I tell him and his two sisters over and over and over is this. You act right not to be my child, not to earn my love. You act right because you already are my child. Because you already have my love. You do what is right because of who you are in Christ. Not in order to be who you are in Christ. So to you, who are truly Christ's followers, I say this. Go forth and sin no more. Practice game-changing righteousness. Find the strength and the power to do that in the deep well of your identity in Christ. Your sinfulness has been exchanged for his righteousness. You have the power of God at work in you. You have the resurrection power of Christ. That's what the New Testament says. This is good news. You ready for some good news? You got the resurrection power of Christ. The same power. The same power that rose Christ from the dead. The same power that healed his wounds. The same power that puts bodies back together and it, and it counts for eternity, gets you into heaven. The same power, the same resurrection power of Christ is at work in you. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Oh, you guys, you had a chance, sir. You had a chance. You had it. It's okay. The same power. If you're a Christ follower, go forth and live by that resurrection power of Christ at work in you. To you who have, le have yet to truly begin following Christ, completely or at all, I say this. Your only hope is the same as my only hope. To have righteousness gifted to you by a merciful God. If you have yet to follow him with your whole life, I invite you to make that decision today. Don't leave here without making that decision. Get baptized next time we have baptism, next month or the month after. I think the next one's on Easter. Get baptized on Easter. Talk to a prayer worker. Make a decision today. And to those of you who aren't sure where you stand in all of this, I say what the Apostle John said. Look at your life. What you do, what you think, your motives. That'll tell you who you really are.
Might not be what you want, but at least it's honest, right? So do you want to be a game changer for your spouse, your kids, your workplace, your community, your church? What's holding you back? Maybe, maybe it's righteousness. Maybe you need to pray for the righteousness of Samuel. That's the game changer, Samuel. Next week, my favorite, King David. Don't miss it. Read 2 Samuel ahead of time to prepare. Let's pray. Lord, today we just ask, we just pray a simple prayer. God, would you, for those who have not yet given their lives over to you, would you exchange miraculously and through the resurrection power of Christ, would you exchange their sinfulness for your righteousness? Would you just give them that? It's, we just can't, we're just at your mercy for this. Would you just give that to us, Lord? I pray for your conviction today that we would be honest. We would take an honest inventory, an honest look at our lives and not shrink back from the conviction. And I pray for those Christ followers that you would inspire them to live righteous lives by your power and your power alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? We've got prayer workers at the sides. If you want to give your life to Jesus or you've got sickness in your body or you've got, you're struggling with something or you just want prayer for something, go get prayer after the song or during the song would be even better. But here's my prayer for you today. May God give you the desire to be used by him in game-changing ways. May you practice righteousness because of the grace you've been given in Christ. And may you depend on Jesus Christ for all of it. God bless you. Make sure you go to a life group this week. If you're not in one, stop at Connection Central on your way out and get into a life group. Talk this over with them this week. And just like you've been helped today to take your next step towards God, don't let it stop there. Leave here. Talk to somebody about the righteousness of Samuel. Open the scriptures and read 1 John chapter 3 with them and discuss it. Be a Jesus follower who makes and disciples other Jesus followers. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.